this entire area of Horizon West, Winter Garden, Windermere, and uh, kind of this, this side of Orange County. Uh, and and I, I love living here, and I love everything about Horizon West. Uh, but what we're talking about is what does it look like to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus in this community at this time? Uh, because it's one thing to live here to enjoy it. Uh, it's another thing to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus. And, and our common assumption is that we don't have to leave here to live for Jesus. The first week we debunked a few myths that say that the suburbs are places where faith goes to die or where people's creativity goes to die. I mean, some really, really kind of uh, rough stuff. Uh, And what we decided was that God's presence came into the world. And the scriptures tell us that God moved into the neighborhood in the person of Jesus. And, And so what it does is it gives value to every neighborhood of every type. So what I'm hoping that we experience in this series is not so much that uh, we need to move or leave to be followers of Jesus. What I hope that you hear is that God has a way for you to live your life here that glorifies him. And so we're going to continue that. The first week we talked about busyness and how the suburbs can uh, perpetuate and create busyness. And we talked about how to rest. Uh, Last week we talked about hospitality and how, maybe surprising to us, We don't have to pair the wine and the cheese just right for uh, us to offer experiences of hospitality to our neighbors. We don't have to be Pinterest perfect, right? We talked about how simply opening our homes and our lives to others allows us to offer the hospitality of Christ. Uh, This week, uh, I want to look at uh, particularly the way that we live, in particular our homes. Uh, And this became aware to me when we moved into the neighborhood that we live in currently. Uh, and, and a few of us are in this community, uh, so if I get anything wrong, you can correct me afterwards. But when, when we moved into the house that we live in currently, we began to meet the neighbors. And the first thing that we noticed was our neighborhood is incredibly friendly. And our assumption is that it's because of the people, right? I'm, I'm bragging on our neighborhood. But it's also because everyone there is new. Like if you'd been there for like two and a half years, it's because you built, and, and that's the longest term that anyone had been there. The second thing I noticed was everybody kept throwing out numbers. And this confused me for a little bit. We'd be in conversation or be at the pool, and we'd see others around, and they'd say, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in the 3737. I was like, oh, that must be like like their address. And then someone else would say, oh, yeah, I'm 3737 too. And I was like, what? The same address number? How is this possible? And then someone else would say, oh, well, I'm I'm 2127, or I'm uh, 3009. And it took me a while to realize that they were not talking about their street address. They were talking about their model of their home, right? So the 3737 is one of the models, right? The the, uh, 3009 is another one. The 2127 is a model, too. And and I'm not sure. Maybe we had, like, those those fancy names on it, like like the Prestige model, right? But for whatever reason, people in our neighborhood just began to refer to their home by the number. And it made a lot of sense because they would say, hey, I'm 3737, and we've got that funky room in the top, and it has kind of this issue. Did you have that problem with yours? And they could say, yeah, we did. And we talked to the builder, and this is what they did to fix it. And so I noticed early on that this became a way that the people in our neighborhood could very easily identify where they lived and fix the problems that they were experiencing or share a commonality. Uh, It took me a little while longer to realize that, that these inspired names of numbers were really just the square footage of the homes, right? So I wasn't sure if that's the original model that they called them or if that's just what they became to be called colloquially. 
But basically, when we would say that, we all knew the square footage of everyone else's house. And so the 3737 is 3,373 feet. And the, the uh, 3009 or the 2127 indicates how much square footage you have inside your home. So it, it took me a while to catch on to what we were talking about. Uh, and I think that's neat how that has developed in our community, and you can see it on our Facebook page. I, I'm sure your community, wherever you live, might have a common thing, whether it's an apartment, a townhome, a house, any size or shape. Uh, when you're buying or leasing or doing those kinds of things, you're basically looking for how much room can we get to fit into, right? So that's one of the nuances of living in the suburban life. Uh, but it's also kind of helped me to draw attention to what I think can be one of the challenges of suburban life. One of the challenges of our area, let me back up to say before we get to the challenge, one of the benefits of the way that this area was designed, Horizon West, it was designed on a master plan, so if you're familiar with like Hunter's Creek or Lake Nona area, it's got the similar idea. And one of the benefits of the plan was that uh, they designed multiple types of housing. And so the reason for that, everything from, from maybe a small apartment to a larger one, smaller single-family homes to different sizes to even what they call estate homes, which typically are around the lakes in the area. The idea with designing these different things was so you could design for a large group of people, and what that inherently does is it brings in diversity. It brings in diversity all across the spectrum because you've created different size spaces for people to live. And I think that's a real positive for the community. Suburbs have been kind of known as creating the same kind of cookie-cutter houses and people and things. And that's a way for our community to bring in diversity. Now, I have not experienced this in my neighborhood, and hopefully you haven't either. But one of the challenges that can raise, and it could raise if we kind of tend to refer to ourselves by our numbers, is we could begin to say, well, well, my number is bigger over here than your number over here, right? And that's a, a fact. That's a fact of how much space that we need or want. But what could happen is we could begin to stand over here and say, well, my square footage is bigger, and thus, if yours is less, I have more worth. Or if you're over here on the other end, you could say, well, I don't have as much square footage. Am I as important or worthwhile as this person over here? And so while the numbers are mostly just so we know how much square footage it is, and we should, in theory, between a, an apartment or a townhome or a single-family home or, a, or an estate home, just have an equal sign where all are equal, we could begin to put the little less-than signs in the middle of those. And I think one of the challenges of living in a suburban community is we can begin to look around at different sizes and shapes of houses, and we can begin to measure each other's worth in our square footage. So if you've ever kind of felt that, that as you looked out your window and thought, man, they've got a lot more space than we do over here. Or maybe you felt like someone in your neighborhood has looked down on you because you weren't in the largest home or the biggest home. One of the challenges that we have to recognize uh, and the benefits of living in this community, the challenges is that we can look at the size of someone else's house and measure their worth in square footage. And so part of what it means to live faithfully in the suburbs is we recognize that that is not an appropriate way for us to measure that. So maybe you're, you're tracking with me and you're saying like, okay, I get it. Like, I don't feel like I've ever like done that. And I don't feel like my neighbors, like in our neighborhood, our neighbors are great. I don't feel like they've ever done that um, to us. But I want you to at least follow along with me because I think there's subtle ways that this impacts us. Uh, so let's turn to the Bible this morning to look at this. 
Because the real issue that we're talking about is the issue of individualism. How do I get for me what I want and need? And so I'd like to look at an example in the Bible of individualism where the idea of, of, of home size is not a direct correlation, but it's certainly there. So let's look this morning at uh, the first chapter of Acts. And picking up at verse 5, it says, As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Jesus replied, It isn't for you to know the times or the season that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. After Jesus said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going away and they were staring towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. They said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking towards heaven? This Jesus whom was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. Now, before we get too much further down this track of this verse, there's five verses that come before it. And it's important for you to know at least two things that happened in there. One was this is after Jesus is risen from the dead, and he is alive, and he comes back to spend time with the disciples. Right? So uh, Jesus is risen. All the sorrow and the grief are gone, and the disciples get a sense of like, wait a minute, like, like this really does change everything. And maybe sometimes we forget that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't like shoot up to heaven and then stay there forever. He actually came back and spent about 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection, after he came out of the tomb. And so this story is part of that moment. It's also important to, to know that Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait for, quote, the promise of the Father. Now, if you and I were there then, it had been like the promise of the Father, we would have been like, okay, like, what does that mean? We have the foresight to know that what Jesus is talking about is he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them. So the Holy Spirit would dwell with each disciple, with each believer, with you and with me as followers of Jesus. Or when we become followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. I mean, that's like a year sermon series in itself. So we can't go into all that this morning. Just know that what they were doing was waiting for the promise of the Father, and Jesus shows up in this moment. It's also just fun to note that while they were there, they were eating. And I don't have like a theological point to that other than to say, it seems like when believers get together, we eat. And I like that. That's really the point there. So as we look at this one, the disciples ask this question. Lord, as a result, as a result of your resurrection, as a result of the fact that you were dead and now you're alive, and that kind of proves that everything you said was true. And if that's the case, then everything that the Israelites believed about the Messiah, the Savior who would come and liberate them from the Romans, well, then all of that, as a result of all of that, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And I think that's a fair question to ask because the disciples had realized that Jesus was alive. And if that was the case, then all the promises of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, were true. And all the promises of the Messiah were true. 
And so if that's the case, they knew that what the Messiah would do was to basically remove the oppressors and the oppression from the people of Israel and allow them to flourish once again in their own steam and in their own space, and in their own land, and their, in their own temple. So the disciples ask a great question. Like, Lord, it's like now this is going to happen, right? The thing we've been waiting thousands of years for is finally going to happen. Uh, and the only problem with that concept is the disciples were still looking backwards. Uh, they were still looking towards history and what had been done and what had been promised and they were forgetting in the moment the things that Jesus did and the way that Jesus expanded things out. In a sense, what they were doing was trying to focus what Jesus was going to do next into kind of a narrow category. So up till this point, God's primary work had been among the people of Israel. And, and so God was with them and blessed them and, and stuck with them and, and when every other civilization around them basically tried to stamp them out. And so the disciples are thinking about the people of Israel, and they're saying, now will you do for them what you've always promised? And Jesus is saying, yes, but it's not just for one people anymore, it's for all people. And so the disciples were once again kind of thinking just about, like, us and our group and our friends and, like, our community, which is valid. And Jesus is saying, not that, but this. Right? So the disciples had kind of turned it a little more inward. They'd been focusing on themselves as individuals, their kingdom, their opportunities, their healing, their hope. And Jesus was trying to say once again to think beyond, to think about all the ways that the kingdom expands beyond. Now, I, I want to pause because uh, if you've read the news recently, you've seen another rise in anti-Semitism, Right? And this time, the most recent ones have come from Christians, people who not only grew up but who were actively part of a Christian church. And somehow their showing up every Sunday and being part of a faith community taught them that persecuting someone who is Jewish is how we live our faith, right, or is a part of that. Now, I know I don't need to, to tell us that, but I feel a responsibility as a pastor to say, when we read a verse like this and Jesus says it's not just about the Jewish people anymore, it's about all people, what we're not hearing is that this kind of group of people is cast out or the enemy, right? I hope what you hear me saying is that Jesus is saying yes and. Yes to the people he's always been with and including that to all people. So I just want to take this to say that there's a lot of ways that people can read anti-Semitism into the Bible, but it's certainly not there and it's certainly not in Jesus and Jesus is certainly not lifting up any of those kinds of practices. What he is doing is inviting the disciples to think about including all people. So he tells them that uh, it isn't for them to know the time when he will come back and return and to do those kinds of things. He was saying, like, like don't worry about that question. I've got something bigger for you over here. Don't worry about what you need or what you want over here. That's valid, but I want you to think about how we include everyone. And Jesus gives them a mission to go and to share the good news in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, I know that everyone here is like a geography student, like I was in college, and that really gets everyone excited to look at maps and stare at those kinds of things. I know everyone likes that, or if you don't, humor me. But it's interesting, when Jesus says that, uh, he says Jerusalem, which is where they were, 
And then he says Judea, which is the surrounding area. And then Samaria, which is the place where no one goes because those people are unclean. Right? See what Jesus is doing there? And then the ends of the earth. And so he says, you begin local, you stretch it out to your region, you think about those who are excluded, and you think about the world. And in this context, as we talk about faith in the suburbs, what I want us to see is that the first place he calls the disciples to share the good news of Jesus is right there where they already were, where they were already putting down their lives. The greatest opportunity that you and I have to share the good news is right there on our street. Right there with the neighbors whose houses or whose apartments are around or above us or next door to us. The ones we share a wall with or a yard with. We can go to the far ends of the earth and that is valid and important and needed. But the place you and I are called to do the most good, the most often, I believe is right there on our streets. We have the greatest opportunity for impact right there. And sometimes we're looking so far out and so much further out that we miss the greatest ministry opportunity that we have. So he tells them that they have this mission to go and to do this and and to start local. And he says, not only that, but you're going to receive power and authority, which is helpful. And that's what the Holy Spirit will do is to give them the power and authority to speak on God's behalf about the things of God. And then, while he was going away, all of a sudden, imagine, imagine this conversation just for a moment. Imagine this conversation, you know, Jesus is there, he's talking, it's great, you're enjoying it, it's good. And then all of a sudden, he just kind of like levitates up and like goes up into the clouds. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. So what would your response be if Jesus is like lifted up and goes into the clouds? My response is like the disciples, I'm pretty much going to stare at that because I've never seen that happen before. Right? And I'm probably going to keep looking up because I had no idea that someone could do that. And I don't know, maybe he's going to come back down? So we can understand why the disciples find themselves caught staring up at heaven when Jesus is lifted up and goes back to uh, heaven with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The interesting part is some angels, or we can assume that's what they are, show up next, and they come to the men and they say, Why are you staring towards heaven? And my response would be, because a man just went from here and floated up to there, and I had no idea that was possible. And so they say, why are you standing here staring towards heaven? He's going to return in the same way that he came. And what I love about this passage is this idea that the disciples are are doing what all of us would do, which is staring and, and following Jesus as he goes up. These angels show up, and they ask them, why are you doing this thing staring up to heaven? And they have the natural response that we would. And what I hear these angels doing is reminding them that their mission is not to stand there and stare at heaven for the rest of their life and see what comes next. It's not for them to know the time that Jesus will return. They were given a mission and a responsibility and an opportunity with their neighbors and with their community. And they could stand there staring up, but the Holy Spirit was going to be working in them to go out. And so what I want to explore this morning is the ways that we get stuck staring up at heaven and potentially miss the calling that God has for each one of us right there in front of us. Uh, And unfortunately, what's happened over the history of the Christian faith is we've kind of been given two options as followers of Jesus, right? So, um, okay, so maybe on one side, you're a follower of Jesus, 
Uh, or if you're someone who's never made that decision, uh, you're thinking about it or you're not sure about it, it's been kind of presented to us that here's what you do. Okay, so as a Christian, option A, you come to faith or you grow up in the faith and you fully devote your life to Jesus. Okay? Or the other option is option B. You're fully devoted or fully wrapped up in the culture of the world. Okay, and you can see how when you present these two options to someone who is a follower of Jesus or who wants to be, are you going to be fully devoted to God or fully involved in the culture? It doesn't feel like much of a choice, does it? Right? Like, obviously, this one is what you're trying to tell me is right, and obviously, this thing about being part of the culture is wrong. Right? Maybe we realize it, maybe we don't, but the faith community over the last couple of centuries has set up this option of either you're in or you're out, and there's really no room in between. And so I want to explore that this morning. And I want to begin with this idea of the disciples who were stuck looking up to heaven. Uh, there's, a, there's a song that came out a few years back, and it's a song that I actually really like and enjoy by a band that I like and enjoy called, uh, the band is Building 429. Uh, and the song title is Where I Belong. And it's got this set of lyrics in it here, and I'm going to say it because you don't want me to sing it. Uh, and it goes like this, all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. Maybe you've heard that one, and, and, and this song, like, it hooks, it catches you. Like, it's singable, it's, it's, it's kind of fun, it's got like an energy and a vibe to it. And for everything that I love about these lyrics, because I think if we can listen at our best, what they're trying to say is, I want to focus my life so much on Jesus that everything else around me kind of disappears or dissipates. And so my focus becomes solely on looking to Jesus as I go through this world. And I can hear the heart of the band and the heart of the people who wrote that there. My challenge with this song is this idea that my home is in heaven, which is true as a follower of Jesus. My struggle is that we sing this phrase, this is not where I belong. This world, this community, this neighborhood, this street, this is not where I belong. I belong in heaven, and I have really nothing to do here. And so it feels to me like life becomes about looking towards heaven and just kind of stumbling through this world. And, and for all the passion behind this lyric... The challenge that this kind of highlights, and this isn't this song's fault or Building 429's fault. Uh, this is something that has kind of been done in the church over the last kind of centuries, is this idea that once we become a follower of Jesus, all we really have to do is think about when we get to heaven, the end of our life. So it's like, I don't know, I would kind of tell someone, like, don't worry about becoming a follower of Jesus until like the end of your life, because then you don't really have anything to do in the meantime. Okay? That's bad advice. What this song tends to say is that what we do here in this life doesn't matter. All that matters is that we're saved and we're going to heaven. And because of that, in subtle ways, what we have done is we have looked out on the world and say that whatever happens in this world doesn't really matter. For example, I don't really care about recycling or about pollution or about global warming, about climate change, because this is not where I belong. Take this world, just give me Jesus. And so Christians have been, become known in many ways as some of the most ardent people against 
climate change were the ones who seemed to work the least to care for the environment and the natural world. But if we look at the book of Genesis, one of the first things that you and I are tasked to do as people of God is we become stewards of the creation that God has given to us. Go home later today and look at Genesis, and when you see that what God does is creates everything, plants, animals, the sky, the sea, and everything in it, and he tells us as humans, you have dominion over these things. It is your responsibility to rule over them, and ruling means that we find a way to be good stewards of these things that God has created. And so I really struggle with this idea that, like, who cares about the world or what happens in it? All I care about is I get to go to heaven. And you can see how very subtly this idea just makes faith about me and my healing and my salvation and my trip to heaven, and I could care less about what else happens in this world. And I believe as followers of Jesus, we need to reclaim this idea that it's not about us, it's about what God is doing in this world. Like the disciples, we can't think so narrowly that we miss the fact that, in fact, this world is our home and that God has called us to be a part of it. And another way I've seen this happen is, is in worship. Now, not here because, like, we're great. Okay. Um, and then it reflects poorly on me if we mess up. Uh, but, but this can happen in worship and in venues where we go to where we come together and the music is about, like, me singing to God. And it's about my personal worship moment. Um, we went to an amazing concert with Hillsong United this past week. Uh, and, and it was an amazing time of seeing a band that I love and enjoy and singing worship songs together. It, it was powerful. And as I got to think about that later, I realized I, I sat like really close to someone on this side. And I could have like put my hands on the shoulders of the person in front of me. And I could have turned around and been close to someone else. And I have no idea who any of those people were. But I worship the God of the universe, the creator of all things, in this proximity to these people. And I never even took the time to ask their name or to really even say hi. And I thought, like, whose fault is that? Is that the band's fault for, for playing in an arena? That's my fault. Because I chose in that moment to have an experience in my own space and with people that I'm familiar with and to worship God in that way. And we come together as a community not just for what we can receive, but because there is power in the gathered community of faith together. So I hope we never create a scenario where we disembody our worship and it becomes just about what you and I can get out of it. So I'm going to, we're going to do something right now. So just so that we don't do this, would everybody kind of stand up for a moment as you're able? And there's people sitting next to you that you know. There's probably people behind you that you don't. And I just need you to turn around for a minute and introduce yourself and say your name and say, I am glad to worship with you this morning. So take a moment and do that. Say your name. Tell them that you're glad to worship with them this morning. All right. And uh, you can have a seat. Well, if this was, a, uh, you know, as good church people, we should probably just eat next. That would be what we would do. Right? Yeah. What I hope we never lose sight of is the reason why God gathers us together in this way is so that we can be in community with others. Our faith is about the vertical relationship with God, but it's also about our horizontal relationship with others. And more often or not, 
our faith, our healing, what we need that day is influenced not just by how well we sing to God, but by the caring community that surrounds us. And so I hope that we become the kind of church that values those relationships and never makes it just about come, sing, get what you need, and then head out the door back into Monday. But unfortunately, we've been given this perspective that the main thing we have to do is simply to fix our eyes on Jesus and to look nowhere else. Not at the neighbor who's struggling over here or the person who just moved in and might need a hand. There's a phrase that we become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. You ever heard that one before? So heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. So we've been given that option. Or option B is we just simply become a part of the culture. And culture over here is the norms, the practices, the customs of any given area. Part of the culture of our neighborhood is we just simply refer to things by their house numbers, the, the 3737, etc. And culture becomes all of those components in the world that include things like media and, and how we consume things. And what we have said is that you're either all in for Jesus or you're all a part of culture. And what we're essentially saying is to be a part of culture is evil. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, your only real option is to kind of stand over here. And this has been done subtly over the years. And we basically told people, your choice is or. And we may wonder why people have a hard time coming to faith in Jesus because we have friends and people over here. I also believe that this has been very damaging, particularly to middle and high schoolers who've been told that to follow Jesus, you have to completely kind of leave and put aside anything over here and join this exclusively Christian community, right? That was what I was told and taught as a high schooler when I became a Christian. And so what it meant was that I could not, I could not keep all of those CDs that I had amassed over the years by those non-Christian artists, right? Like even Garth Brooks had to be gotten rid of, right? I'm a big Garth Brooks fan. Don't say anything bad about him, right? right? So the, 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 what we were taught was that if you had any CD that was not explicitly a Christian band with lyrics, that had to be gotten rid of and thrown away or broken, and people would, like, make a whole thing out of that. Anybody else do that? Just me. Great. All right. <laughs> people told me to. Because I thought what it meant to live as a Christian was to be completely over here. And so the challenge is we've taught our, our teens and our young adults that, that these things cannot live together. And that anything that is seen as over there, that God can't speak through any music besides anything that's explicitly Christian. So unfortunately, we've made this an either-or, but I've got good news for us this morning. There's a third way. There's a, there's a better way, I might offer, to live as a person of faith, and it's seen in the example of Jesus. So when God comes to earth, God comes as the person of Jesus Christ, right? And what we know about God is that when Jesus came in human form, he was both fully divine which meant that he was 100% God and at the same time was fully human. He was 100% human. And so when Jesus is on earth and Jesus is God on earth, he is both 100% divine and 100% human. And so what I see in Jesus is not this either or, it's a both and. And I believe that offers us a better way to live as people of faith and in a way that we must reclaim as people of faith. It's not so much about separating out people, 
It's about living as Jesus lived in the world. Jesus fully partook in the culture of the day. He went to weddings. He went to parties. He had people over his house. He had people over his house who weren't even Christians yet. That's a joke because he's Christ and they're not Christians, right? Yeah. Yeah. But like Jesus spends time with people like that. And he spends time with the religious leaders who are like, no, it's, it's this way or no way. And Jesus brings these two elements together in a third way. And when we make our faith about you're either in or you're out, you're either this side or you're that side, <laughs> you're either right or you're left, we see how our society has begun to get so far off track because we've said to someone, it's either or. You choose. There's no middle ground. And, and what we're really saying is I am right because I am on this side and you are wrong because you are on that side. And very subtly, this idea of individualism, it's about me and my decisions and my choices, can impact the ways that we live because we can begin to look at our neighborhoods and say, well, this size or this type of house or this type of community is more valuable than that one. One of the places I've seen it in, in kind of the Facebook forums around the town is, is whenever a new developer decides to put up uh, a new apartment complex. Uh, and these have been planned. They're already kind of drawn in, even if they're not in reality yet. And people say, I don't, want a, I don't want an apartment complex by my house because that could hurt my home value. And I believe those are the moments where we begin to say, my worth is more than yours. Because my square footage and the style of how I live is more valuable than yours. And so as people of faith, we are the ones who must speak up to say that our worth is not measured in our square footage. It is not either there or here. That God is doing something among us, and he's bringing all people together. He's offering his hope to all people. And the way we get there is with, is with the theology and understanding of God that says life is both and. It is both focusing our attention 100% on Jesus, and it is also being deeply engaged and connected with our community and our neighborhood. I don't know how to live as a follower of Jesus without being engaged in my community and keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus. I honestly think one without the other just doesn't make much sense. And so my hope for us uh, in particular today is that we find ways to live faith together, and I believe that it's best practiced on Sundays and then lived out during the week. So that's why I asked you to introduce yourself to others, is to keep that corporate nature going. Um, that's also why after the Lord's Prayer, after the prayer time today, we'll um, share together the Lord's Prayer. Because we say it together, because it includes uh, we and our language, not just I and me language. And it's something that tells us that we are walking in a stream of faith that has gone on long before us and will go on long after us. So as we think about this, world, this, this community, Horizon West, I believe we have a unique opportunity that I don't know any other community or another place where I've lived has. The unique thing about this suburb is it's only half built. Right? The unique thing about here is that it is not fully developed yet. One of my favorite quotes is this one here that says, sometimes you have to create what you want to be a part of. And in this area... It doesn't exist. So if you want a Wawa, which I do, you have to play some role in helping to make that happen. If you want 
a community that is, that is inclusive and welcoming, you have to do something to create it. If you want a neighborhood that lives differently or shares meals together or invites others to be a part of it, then, then you have to create it. The unique opportunity we have here is this area is not built. It is not established. We're missing key things like, I don't know, like a post office, like, like another gas station besides one of them, right? The, the plans and the physical structures for this community are needed and they're kind of designed. But we also need the values shaped. What does it mean to live in this area? And how can we as followers of Jesus help to shape that? I believe, as I said, that you have the greatest opportunity in the place you live with the neighbors who are around you to help create the culture of what Horizon West will be for years and years to come. And while we could go big and do big things, the best ways we can influence that culture is by living as Jesus lived right there on our street. Welcoming the person who's new, grieving with those who are struggling, helping someone who needs help. And it doesn't have to be something big. Those small, tangible acts become ways that we share the good news. So I want to invite you to think this week as we continue in worship about how you are called to lead God's kingdom on your street. It doesn't mean you have to stand on the corner with like a megaphone and like preach to your neighbors because like they will not love you for that, even if they're already a Christian. It's more often shared through those tangible acts as a follower. And I want to invite you this week uh, to lift up your eyes, to see those who are around you, but to not lift up our eyes so far that we miss the work that Jesus is doing right here around us and in us and through you. And so as we've been offering each week, uh, here are a couple of counter-liturgies that help counter that individualism that you and I can struggle with from time to time. Uh, They're spelled out there, but if you go to todayatcitrus.org, you can see a lot more detail about some practices that you could do this week, something that's simple, that will help you fix your attention on those that God has given to each one of you. So uh, take a picture, visit that, save it in your browser, and uh, that can be a way that you can pray through and live out this week. So what I'd like to do is to give us a moment uh, in prayer uh, to, to come and to connect with God, because we've connected with each other. But I'm sure that there are things and people and places on your heart this morning that you would love to offer to God. So in a moment of silence, I want to give you space to offer your prayer to Jesus who is present with us this morning. Let's pray.